All right, we are talking about uh, apocalyptic prophecy because we're working our way through Matthew and we've arrived at Matthew 24, 25, the discourse on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus says a bunch of, uh, on one level, surprising things. And we're trying to figure out how do we understand what Jesus says. And then we're doing this uh, through the text in the Gospel of Mark only because Matthew's is spread across two chapters and is a little harder to get back and forth between them, whereas Mark, being as succinct as he always is, is a little easier to follow in terms of jumping back and forth. And we've talked about on the handout, we talked about last week all the terms on the front of the page, and we talked about how you can do a little bit of mix and match there. Uh, And now today we're going to talk about the terms on the back of the page and specifically how you can read this passage, the Discourse on the Mount of Olives, from any of these positions, and how do we try to make the most sense of it. Remember, as we talk about this stuff, a couple of things. Um, If you grew up in the American church, (laughs) you grew up most likely under uh, premillennial dispensationalism, this idea that there is a uh, rapture that comes where God takes his people away before a period of trials of seven years at which Jesus returns and ushers in a thousand year kingdom of peace in Israel. And uh, so m- much of what we hear is outside of here today is going to be outside of that view, even when I talk about premillennialism. Because when I talk about the premillennial view, I'm largely going to talk about historic premillennialism because I'm trying to focus on the interpretations of this passage that I think are the most credible. And there are faithful, God-honoring people who hold every view. There are faithful, God-honoring people who uh, believe the Bible is the literal word of God and who've really thought carefully about this issue on the ones that we're going to talk about today. And I will talk a little bit about what I think is wrong, by and large, with the more, um, more modern premillennial understanding. Uh, so we'll dig, in, dig into that just a, a bit. We're asking, how do you read prophecy and what's the point of them? Because that's what we always want to think about. Our, we, we want to understand the Bible the way God wants us to understand the Bible. And we want to be able to use it the way God wants us to be able to use it. So you'll hear me say in the sermon today, and it's something that you got to think carefully about because it could certainly be misunderstood or misused, but you're going to hear me say what the Bible means is as important as what the Bible says. And you step back for a minute, well, what's, what's the difference between those two? Well, the difference that I'm trying to bring out is Um, If I say, the example that I use a a thousand times over, I went to a party last night and everyone was there. Is there a difference between what I said and what I mean? Yes, right? What did I say? Everyone was there. So if you want to take that just at what we would call the word level, I am saying something that's not true. Everyone was not there. But what do I mean by this? A lot of people were there. 
it was crowded or everyone you know was there. Everyone in our social circle was there. So there's a difference between, a meaningful difference between what you say and what you mean. Uh, we go through this a lot in our relationships and friendships and family and marriage. It's not so much what you said as how you said it, <laughs> because the how you said it can get at what you mean and it can change what you're trying to say. So we want to read the Bible, not just for what it says in this sense, but for what it means. What does it mean by using those words, by using those phrases? What is the point of this? What am I supposed to believe? What am I supposed to do with it? And so you get into these apocalyptic prophecies and what they say is all kinds of stuff, right? Coming on the clouds and, and beasts and Babylon and thousand years. And there's just all kinds of stuff that at the word level, what in, in the world is this saying? And even Jesus here, as he answers the disciples' questions, says a lot of words that just at the word level can either be very confusing um, or can even contradict things that are said by the Bible in other places. And what we've got to look at carefully is what does it mean? So what was the point of apocalyptic prophecy? This is what I want to keep emphasizing every week. What is the point of this genre being in the Bible? Is it so that you can mark on your calendar exactly what's going to happen when? No. Is it so that you can interpret all of the happenings in the newspaper in light of Revelation 4 through 20? No. What is the point of this prophecy being in the Bible? To be ready. To be ready. And that's why in this discourse on the Mount of Olives... Jesus gives the answers to their questions because they're asking two questions. They're asking, when is the temple going to be destroyed? These, the thing that Jesus just talked about. And what will be the signs of the end of the age and your coming? Jesus does answer their questions, but what does he do over and over and over again as he's answering their questions? He exhorts them, therefore be ready. Therefore do not be taken by surprise. Therefore um, anticipate my coming. So whatever we decide in the end to make out of the specific order of the events that are going to take place, what we can never lose sight of is this, is to be ready. And any view that minimizes us hearing it and being ready, or that minimizes the original hearers, the disciples, uh, minimizing it and not being ready, that view cannot be what Jesus means. Because he says over and over again, this is the point of what he's telling them. So how do we read the prophecies? And then how do we understand what the Bible means by them in light of what's actually said in uh, in the Discourse on the Mount of Olives. So that's what we're going to look at today. Um, all right, back of your handout. So dispensationalism. Let's just define some terms real quick. 
Dispensationalism is that God works in dispensations, different economies, different plans. You could take the time period of history, right? And it's my tremendous artwork that some of you are not used to yet. These are the major events in redemptive history. We got a tree, we got a cross, we got an ascension, we got a second coming, and then we got AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Dispensationalism says in the timeline of redemptive history, God has different things happening. So this is one, and then this is a different one. And some classic views of dispensationalism and then there's a couple in here we'll have seven dispensations seven different periods economies uh, times where God is working out covenantal plans throughout history over time that view has really fallen out of favor um, for the fact that it doesn't work Um, (laughs) it doesn't fit the Bible at all uh, neither does the next version of dispensationalism, but it's at least easier to understand. Um, and so when people say dispensationalism today, what they're usually talking about are two dispensations. One dispensation that goes from here to here, which is called Israel. One dispensation that goes from here to here, which is called the church. And then what actually happens here is we resume this one. We go back to wrap up the loose ends with respect to the Israel dispensation. So God has worked with two um, plans, two covenantal groups, two dispensations of time and, and his people in history. One of them was Israel. Another one is the church. Um, they are all saved by faith, but Israel is saved by faith um, revealed through obedience to the law, and the church is saved by grace through faith, um, which I know that sounds probably like a little bit of an odd distinction, but uh, it's not like they're saying that God saves by something other than faith. It's just how does God use faith to save? And here it's God gives faith by grace. And here it's faith is proved, revealed. I would, they would probably be mad if I said earned, but kind of earned through the keeping of the law. And that's the two dispensations. Um, and so if you're going to say that the two covenants, Israel and the church, are radically separated and not overlapping, if there's something really different between what God did with Israel and what God did with the church, we know how the church age is going to end, they'll say when we get to this passage. Jesus is going to come. He's going to take his people with him, and we inherit heaven, new heavens and the new earth. Um, This is another place where American Christians get very confused is um, you all believe that when we say Jesus was raised from the dead, did his spirit live on or was his body raised from the dead too? 
we don't know. We don't know if Jesus' body came out of a tomb or just his spirit. Body, right? This is a pre. So we'll have to back up a little bit if we're. <laughs> we got some work to do. All right. It's very important in Christianity. One of the central tenets of our faith is that Jesus was not just raised in spirit, but his body came out of the tomb. His body appeared to the disciples. His body, his body appeared to the disciples on the beach, and then he rummages through the cooler and he picks out a fish and he cooks up some fish and makes a nice dinner. Right? Jesus was very much body when he was raised from the dead. A lot of Christians understand that, but then still get squirrely on what is the everlasting state for us? We die, and then what happens to us forever? Oh, we live in heaven as disembodied spirits. No, 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 no. We follow him in his resurrection. So we will live in an intermediate state in heaven without bodies as spirits until the resurrection of the dead. And then we're reunited with our bodies. We now have glorified bodies. And that's what we call the new heavens and the new earth. So when you hear me refer to heaven, I'm usually talking about the intermediate state, the place where we don't have bodies. When you hear me talk about the new heavens and the new earth, I'm talking about after the resurrection of the dead, after we have our glorified bodies, where we will be for eternity. Where we will be for eternity looks a lot closer to this life now, but without sin, death, and the curse, which is pretty unimaginable. But it looks a lot closer to this world than it looks to Hallmark greening cards with cherubs with angels sitting on clouds. That's the important distinction. So we know that's in the dispensational plan where the church is headed. But what about Israel? Is God just done with them forever? Well, in the dispensational view, they have to answer that. We don't have to answer that. Why don't we have to answer that? Because it's all one thing. Any in Israel who believe in Christ are saved. That's all they have to do. Believe in Christ. Jew, Gentile, these distinctions are wiped away because Christ is the object of our faith. They received covenantal judgment on their national covenant and promises in AD 70, which we've talked about. But for somebody of Jewish descent who wants to be in the new heavens and the new earth with Christ, all they have to do is have faith in Christ, the same as any of the rest of us. But that's a different plan in dispensationalism. That's not an option. So God has to reopen that timeline and tie up some loose ends and deal with Israel. Um, And we'll talk about how that relates to the text here in, in just a few minutes. But questions about that in terms of understanding, when I say dispensationalism, because it's going to be radically different from the other positions I describe. The other positions I describe, at the very least... The order of things happening in the end will be different. The, what the Bible means by a certain term. What does it mean by millennium? What does it mean by um, tribulations? Those can be different. But what's the same in all the other views and different in this one is this bracket concept where God has two different and I don't know the best word to use. 
it's not like it's two different plans because it's all one plan of God, but it's two different ways of working with his people. It's two different covenantal arcs, one for Israel and one for the church. And that is so different, it's going to impact everything else we talk about with the text. Question? Yep. Are the two dispensations basically Old and New Testament, or is that correct? Is it like the timeline of it, or is it since Christ? It's basically Old and New Testament because... Um, John the Baptist was the last. This is so tough. Um, yeah. No, it's a good question. It's basically Old and New Testament is, is the fairest way to say it. Though there are passages in the New Testament that a dispensationalist would have to say refer only to Israel and not to the church and vice versa. So the Old Testament is distinctly this. The New Testament then becomes a, a mishmash of talking to both. And you have to parse out which group is he talking to in which place, especially in apocalyptic prophecy. One other thing I learned, um, just back to the back of the handout for a minute, we talked about premillennial, postmill, and amill. So premillennial, all these terms, all these views are described by the way we get these words, premill, postmill, amill. All these are defined by their understanding of when the Bible talks about the millennium, this thousand-year reign of Christ and of peace. Remember on my beautiful drawing, this is the second coming. Where does that millennium fall compared to that second coming. So a premillennial says the millennium comes here before the second coming. A postmillennial says the millennium comes here after the second coming. An amillennial says really uh it depends. <laughs> and Amillennial says that because the millennium is not a literal thousand-year reign of peace on the earth anyway, you've mislabeled the view and you're really missing the, the point. Um, but there will be Amillennials who say we're living in that thousand-year reign right now, not on the earth but as Christ and the prayers of the martyrs in heaven advance the gospel throughout the world, that is the promised time. And then there are those who will say it's a spirit, it's a non-literal spiritual reign here. Just to add some confusion. This is why I think, well, I'll save that for the end. All right, let's deal with this text because this is a class about the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, even though we're jumping to Mark, Jesus says this stuff in the context of the Gospel. So how do we understand and how do we deal with this? In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is answering those two questions. When will these things be? And what will be the signs of your coming? Well, really the end of the age.
And his goal is to tell them sooner than you think. He'll describe this. Therefore, be ready. And if we say that, so if we just go back to the front of our sheet for a minute, we want to start ruling out views to try and figure out what this says. So the futurist view, remember, said that all of these prophecies are about events immediately prior to the second coming. Way in the future, now could have been 10 years in the future, but we're 2,000 years later, so we wasn't 10 years, that there is something that is going to happen right before the second coming. And what Jesus is describing is in that period of time. These are, remember, the, the folks that want to read the newspaper and see every conflict in the Middle East as being mapped to some specific prophecy in Matthew or Revelation or Daniel. H how does... Um, well, let me ask you, what's wrong with that view? What I've tried to do for two weeks now is set up the context. What Jesus is asked, what the purpose of everything he says is going to be. So what's wrong with a view that says everything that the Bible talks about in apocalyptic prophecy, everything that Jesus says is at some point way in the future, just before the second coming. It's completely unhelpful to most Christians throughout all time. You hear that? It, 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 and I'll break that down into two parts. It's unhelpful to anyone who doesn't live here in this last minute before the second coming. If what he's saying is, here are all the things you need to know about the seven years immediately prior to my coming, then for whom does that information matter? People who live in that seven years. Doesn't matter for anybody else, because you're not going to live through it. Now, it's particularly useless information in the dispensational futurist view because what do they say happens to the Christians right before that seven-year tribulation that Jesus is describing? They get raptured away. So now you're telling me that the disciples ask Jesus two questions. He answers, this is the second part of my answer, he answers neither of their questions. If all of this is there and they're asking, hey, Jesus, you just said the temple was going to be left not one stone upon another. That's a pretty intense thing to say. When is that going to happen? And what will be the signs of your coming? And Jesus says, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about this period of time that has nothing to do with you whatsoever. And oh, by the way, will have nothing to do with any believer who ever lives. That's a pretty strange answer for Jesus to give. He's asked two reasonable questions. He's the one who started this, not one stone left upon another. They ask him the kind of questions I hope you all would ask him. Gee, Jesus, what does that mean? And Jesus says, nah, we're going to talk about this. All right, that cannot be right. 
cannot be right. Uh, so that's the problem with the futurist view. Uh, and really, the big problem with the dispensational view, which if we want to connect these together for a minute, um, the, the dispensational view has to bounce back and forth between rapture, some verses being about the rapture. So if you look in Mark for a minute, because it's just going to be, again, easier to deal with one chapter. So this is Mark 13. Take the big text so I can see it bigger. I don't expect you to remember two weeks ago when we went through all these texts carefully. So in the dispensational view, you have to take Mark 13, 32 through 37. But concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. He leaves home, puts his servants in charge, each with his work, commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. So all of this be ready stuff, because it's going to come in an instant. Like In the dispensational view, what is that about? What is that telling Christians to be ready for? The second coming? No. What's the thief in the night? Part. Rapture. So in the dispensational view, this part at the end of the Olivet Discourse has to be talking about the rapture. But go back to the beginning of this, chapter 13, verses 5 through 23. This whole section, they'll deliver you over to councils, beaten in synagogues, abomination of desolation, all of that stuff stuff has to be about the seven-year reign of Satan over the earth, the tribulation. So again, he's telling people who aren't going to experience it to, what does he say, verse 23, at the end of the section? Be on guard. Be on guard for what? Be on guard for the stuff that you're not going to be here for. Be on guard for the stuff that isn't going to impact you at all. And then you have a real historical problem, which is real events did happen in AD 70. Real events that sound a lot like what Jesus describes in 5 through 23. We know the abomination of desolation is about the temple. The Bible's very clear that that phrase refers to the destruction and the blasphemy of the temple. Uh, we know that delivered over to councils, is that something the apostles experienced? Beaten in synagogues, right? All of this, we know, takes place here in between Jesus and AD 70, or at least stuff that sounds just like it. And so, is it reasonable that when the disciples ask Jesus these questions and Jesus starts to describe things that sound just like what we know for a fact happened in this 35-year period in history, is it reasonable to say, no, that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about over here. Something that they wouldn't live to see 
and something that, let's say it happens tomorrow, none of us would experience. We're all raptured out and don't have participation in that. Um, so, and then you also have to shoehorn in, by the way, you notice in explaining the dispensational position, so far I've left out verses 24 to 31, the middle section of this discourse, because in the dispensational view, that does have to refer to the second coming. Everybody agrees 24 through 27 is second coming language. The son of man coming on the clouds, the sun being darkened and not giving his light. That is, we talked about technical terms. That are, those are technical terms that refer to the second coming. So then the organization of Jesus' answer to these questions that the disciples ask in the dispensational view is not only that he doesn't answer these questions, but that his order is, first I'm going to tell you about the seven-year tribulation, Then I'm going to tell you about second, what we think of as the second coming, which is the final, what we call the final consummation, the end. And then I'm going to tell you uh, about the rapture. It just doesn't fit the text. It doesn't fit the text, and it certainly doesn't fit Jesus giving meaningful answers to what he was asked, to people who can do something with those answers. The Bible is not meant to be a, uh, a, a, a Dan Brown mystery that you have to search through to find secrets that God is trying to hide from you so that you can possess some secret knowledge that other people don't have. The Bible exists to be the story of God's revelation and interaction with his people from the moment he made them until the moment that he remakes them in the age that is to come. The Bible is a very purposeful, useful book. In Matthew, this is the largest sustained teaching that Jesus gives, is the course on the Mount of Olives. Um, and so you're saying that all this energy that Jesus puts into this discussion has nothing to do with any of the people he's talking to, nor nothing to do with any of, of us. Um, so questions about that? This is why... <laughs> Here's the hard part for me, guys. <clears throat> I don't know which of the other views to tell you is the most believable. I don't know. Um, I, I am amillennial. <laughs> I'm an optimistic amillennial. I believe that the prayers of the saints and the reign of Christ after his ascension are doing something in this world beyond what we can see. As the gospel goes out into the world and people believe it, as the church stands firm in the truth and helps the world see the love of Christ, those things are happening because of the reign of Christ that he's invited the saints who have departed into in the heavenly kingdom. There's an there's a impact down here 
on what's happen- by what's happening up there. So I'm an optimistic uh, millennial. I, I don't, you know, my grandmother, I grew up in, here in Atlanta, actually, and my great-grandmother uh, was one of the old Southern ladies who I'm confident invented the phrase, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Right? That was just her view of everything that went wrong was the world's just going to hell in a handbasket. But that's not what I see. I see the decline of empires. I see the rise of the church in the Southern Hemisphere. I, I, I see good things, not good things the way a crescendo in music happens where every moment is louder than the one before it? I don't see that. I see the way my friend Doug Kelly used to talk about it. It's the way the tide comes in. There are waves that are not as far up the beach as the previous wave. But on the whole, the tide is coming in. Where did Kelly fall? He's a partial preterist. I'm very sympathetic. He yeah, he's an um, sorry, he's an amillennial partial preterist, which is what I lean more toward these days. Um, I, I th- partial preterism is really appealing to me because as Christians, we underestimate the significance of what happened in Jerusalem in AD 70. Whereas for the disciples who are asking Jesus this question, it would have been life-altering. I mean, the expectation of the Jewish people based on the Old Testament covenant was that if they would be faithful, they would conquer the world, essentially, right? They would have the throne of David Forever, like They would be the world-conquering reign of peace. That was the expectation of the Jewish people. And yeah, they saw some setbacks along the way, but the Jewish expectation was always, we're going to get the good stuff out of this covenant in the end. The problem is, what was the covenant with Israel? It was, if you do this, you shall live. Not, you'll get all this good stuff no matter what. And so what history reveals is, Israel did not keep the covenant. You go all the way, it's bad, you guys. Read the Old Testament, it's bad. But that's not even the worst of it. What's the worst of it? What's the nail in the coffin for God's covenant with Israel. Every Christmas time at our lessons and carol service, do we read more from the New Testament or the Old Testament? The old. The suffering servant prophecies. To whom were those written? Israel. Who Jesus was the promised Messiah of who? Israel. Jesus himself says, I came to my own, but they did not know me. Early in his ministry, the Sumerian woman says, hey, I'd like a Messiah. 
I'd like to be at your table. And what does Jesus says? What's to us is just mind blowing. What does Jesus say to her? I came first for the children of Israel. Well, that's not the Jesus we know. Yeah, it's the Jesus they were told to expect. He was the Jewish Messiah. Why does the church as we know it exist? Now, this was all part of God's plan. It's not a surprise. But in God's plan, how did this happen? Because they said, give us Barabbas. Because the Jews rejected their Messiah. That's why Paul spends so much time in Romans saying, I can't believe you guys did this. Do you not see all the benefits that you had? And we've got these Gentiles believing in the Messiah. They're being saved through faith in Christ. But you are rejecting the one that God sent you. So this is lots of bad stuff. (laughs) Israel covenant breaking. And then here on the cross, the ultimate covenant breaking. What's the, Lauren brought it up at the end of class last week. What is the visual symbol of the concept that God must move on from this covenant with Israel? What happens at the moment Jesus dies on the earth? The curtain. Right? We only think of that in the positive sense. The boundary between God and man is broken. But it's there's still a boundary between God and man. He's God and we're not. It's where is the favored presence of God to be found? For this long, it was found with Israel, represented through the temple. And then they rejected their Messiah. So now if you read this passage in Mark or Matthew or Luke, and you have in mind, here are some guys in A.D. 20-ish listening to Jesus say, you see that temple that you just admired? Destroyed. You won't be able to find two bricks stacked upon each other. That's going to blow their minds. Wait, what? When will these things be? And then as a Jew, hearing that and knowing that there's a promise of this, they can't imagine that the two are not the same event. Turns out they're not the same event. But, but what's behind the disciples' question is, whoa, if you are blowing up the temple, then that is the end. That's the end. And Jesus says, oh, you think that's something? I'm going to wipe out Jerusalem. You're going to flee to the mountains. You're, you're going to see me come in glory and in judgment. Not, we, we think the happy thoughts here, which is good. We should. This is not a happy thought. This is Jesus returning in judgment. So you, people to whom I am talking, disciples who ask this question, what should you do with this information? Be ready. And it does have implications for us as we await this final consummation. 
but it doesn't have the same implication for us that we're waiting for some specific series of tribulations that will be the sign of the end of the age. What is the sign of the end of the age? Which age is ending? We read it like 21st century American Christians. The only age we care about is this one, the age in which we live. But when Jesus says this will be the sign of the end of the age, this wasn't the age the disciples were asking about. They were asking about this age. The age that was pretty much all of human history up to that point where God worked through his people Israel and the covenant that he had offered them. Now we know that when it comes to salvation from this moment in Genesis 3 to this moment of his coming, there's only one covenant. The covenant of grace is the same covenant that saved Abraham, is the covenant that will save our children and our children's children until he comes. But there was another covenant with Israel Do this and you shall, not salvation, but the covenant of prosperity, the covenant of land and rest and peace. But that covenant had strings attached. Obey me. And I hope you see in your Old Testament leading up to this moment, they didn't do it. Questions about that? Adam could do it. Um, That's not a good answer. Forget that. Yes. The good answer is yes. Because you asked about the covenant for Israel. Could Israel have been blessed, not salvation, as the nation with the national promises they were offered throughout the Old Testament? Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, they could have done it because it didn't require perfection. Remember, that covenant had all kinds of sin offerings. That covenant had all kinds of, I messed up. Here is how I repay God with my sacrifice, with my offering. Here is how forgiveness is offered in that covenant. So, yeah, they absolutely could have kept it. But they fought God all along the way. They fought him. You go all the way back to the book of Judges. God, you just gave us these elders to lead us. What we really need around here is a king. God says, no, trust me. You don't want no king. No, no, God. If we had a king, it would be amazing. God says, all right, I'll give you an amazing king. Here's David. All right, this is amazing. All right, now it's David's son. Oh, oh, this is not so good. Here's David's son's son. Oh, oh, this king thing is a really bad plan. And then we need two kings. <laughs> we, we need two kings. They split the kingdom, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Well, in first, One of those kingdoms never had a good king again. Sorry. Well, first Saul before David. Oh, that's right. It's all bad. It's all bad. Every now and then in Israel's history, you would get a good king in the southern kingdom. And good king means, like, for about three weeks, he would find the law of God, say, this thing's incredible. And then he would go to the people and he would say, you should do this. This is incredible. And the people would say, nah. And then that was it. His kingdom would end. (laughs) Uh, Yes, that was totally doable. 
and they rejected it. And it really, I mean, how hard would it have been, just humanly speaking, how hard would it have been to receive Jesus as the Messiah? Pretty easy, because read the Gospels. What did they do on Palm Sunday? They received Jesus as their Messiah. Jesus is marched into Jerusalem as a conquering hero. They lay down palm branches. They are so ready to receive Jesus as their Messiah. And then what happens? Jesus starts talking crazy. Uh, the son, I will die. Wait, what? no, 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 no. You will conquer and reign over the kingdom of peace. No, no, that's not how it works out. Actually, I will suffer and die. All right, give us the next Messiah. Give us one who's not going to die. We want a good Messiah. This one has a death wish. And then that's where you get the give us Barabbas stuff. Um, They were ready for Messiah. They knew to expect Messiah. But what they wanted was not what Jesus was offering. Just like they never wanted what God was offering. Ever. They had their own ideas of what the good Messiah would be. That's right. They had our own ideas of what good would be, which we can certainly relate to, right? When God says that everything that he does is what's best for his people for the long term. So everything that happens, every cultural crisis, the results of every election, every war, the, re- the results of everything that happened in history are what's best for God's people for the long term. It's Romans 8.28. And then we look at that and we say, no, nah, I'd like a different best. <laughs> I'd like a different good. Um, this is, we'll talk about in the sermon, this is what drove Solomon nuts. I think literally this is what drove him insane was his inability to reconcile the problem of evil. That if I were God, this is not what I would be doing. And therefore, can't be. Can't be. God is not who we think he is. Um, Same questions Job asked. But when God got up in Job's face and said, who do you think you are? Job said, you have a very good point. And I don't see that Solomon ever got to that point of saying, oh yeah, that makes sense. You're God and I'm not. He recognizes you're God and I'm not. He doesn't humble himself before that fact. He gives in to despair in light of that fact. Questions about this? My goal is not obviously to persuade you on a particular view of things, except dispensational premillennialism can't be right. It doesn't fit the text. So in the last few minutes here, What should we expect based on these texts, based on Revelation? What is our takeaway? Well, we all need to believe in this second coming. Christ said he will return. Scripture says Christ will return in glory, as we'll say in the creed later. He'll return in glory to judge both the living and the dead. And then it's one of the tough things about creeds. Creeds say something and then they have a bunch of sub statements. 
And you have to remember that the substatement goes back to the first thing. So I believe in Jesus Christ. And then when you get to the very end of that subsection, it says, whose kingdom shall have no end. So we believe he's coming in glory to judge the living and the dead, and he's coming to establish a kingdom that will have no end. We don't believe we're waiting on some last-minute series of the world getting really, really, really bad, and until that happens, he can't come. We don't believe that because, one... The most reasonable way to understand Jesus answering their question is that what Jesus is specifically referring to in those verses is AD 70, the end of that age, God's judgment coming on Jerusalem. But we also recognize what Jesus says here, what the apostles said in their ministry in Acts and Paul in his epistles, that we do live in a present evil age. We do live in a time where there are trials and tribulations and wars and rumors of war and even false Christs. You think we don't live in an age of antichrists? We don't live in an age where people in positions of power and authority and influence set them up in themselves up in opposition to Christ to try and lead people astray? Absolutely we live in that age. That age has existed since the time Christ ascended. False Christs, the Judaizers that Paul's dealing with in the books in Corinthians. False Christ, that, that's something that we need to be ready for and anticipate. Be careful lest you be led astray. So we're waiting for the return of our Savior to usher in a new heavens and a new earth, an everlasting kingdom of peace and glory where there is no sin, where there is no curse, where we have bodies but glorified bodies, where life looks like this life but without sin, without curse, which is unfathomable. Um, And we believe that when people die prior to that, Those who are in Christ are with Christ. But they're with Christ without their bodies. They're with Christ in a spiritual heavenly kingdom as they too await the resurrection of the dead. So what all of this means for us is be ready. The easiest thing in the world to believe, kids and adults, but especially kids, is I've got plenty of time. I got plenty of time. Jesus didn't come back yesterday. So he's not coming back tomorrow. And a lot of days, if you said that, you'd be right. My whole life, I could have said that every day and I'd be right. But I don't know if I'll be right if I say it today. And so be ready. Be watchful, he says, because there are people trying to lead us astray. There are people trying to... Teach us things that are opposed to Christ, trying to influence the way that we think, the way that we make decisions, the way that we treat other people in ways that are opposed to what Christ tells us to do. And when when Jesus himself and when all of scripture talks about how we're supposed to think about the end times, the last days, more than anything else, Jesus focuses on this. Therefore, you be ready, be ready watchful. Do not be led astray.
And that's where we need to focus our energies, not on taking the front page of the USA Today and seeing if we can map it to Revelation 16 or to this country or that dictator or that one. Questions about that? Um, yeah. I feel like today the church is kind of sounding like Israel within mm. the covenant of Israel. Do you think that's true? Or do you see what I'm Not all Israel is Israel. Remember that phrase from the... And then... uh, Not all sheep are sheep. The reality is there have always been, as the great hymn says, false sons in her pale. There will always be those who are a part of the covenant community externally, whose hearts are not with Christ, and they do more damage than anyone else. Um, Who does more damage to the kingdom of God? A, A real vocal anti-Christ, always been anti-Christ, knows nothing about the Bible, scientist at a university, or, I'm going to get in so much trouble. I was going to say Rhett and Link on YouTube. Guys who grew up in the church, guys who grew up in RUF campus ministries, guys who know the Bible, and then decided that because they have gay friends who are nice because they have other things that the Bible says are not okay, none of it can be true. None of it can be taken literally. And so they want to be able to say to our teenagers, look, your parents, they mean well, but this outdated stuff, I mean, they're going to be on the wrong side of history. That is way more dangerous to our children. I'm not worried. I don't worry about the university professors at all, guys. Professors' impacts are meaningful and short-lived. But the impact of what appears to be a reasonable, like-minded peer who says, no, I know all that stuff. I I believed it too. And then I woke up. That's, That's the danger. And the fact that many of those people come out of the church... And that many times they don't have to come out of the church to teach that. That they can remain members in good standing of the church because the church doesn't really have a concept of excommunication anymore. And they can remain sort of within the visible covenant community while distancing themselves from the head of the church, which is Christ. And that's that's why you talk about as a church and you think, man, you think there's any church on the planet, including ours, that wants to practice church discipline? That wants to tell it a member, we don't think you're a Christian. Who would want to do that? But if you don't do it, what you get is the church, big, big church that we have today, which is saying I'm a member of a church means nothing, tells me nothing about what you actually believe telling me that you're an elder of a church tells me nothing about what you actually believe. Um, so yeah, I, I, I see the parallel. I accept it. All right, we got to go.